I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Mark Machado, and the school have asked me to contact other old Priorians and um, have a chat with them about what's made them a success in their career. Today, I'm uh, very lucky, um, because this man's time is very very precious, um, to talk to somebody who I won the World Cup with, which sounds quite bizarre, but when I was about, I think, eight or nine years old, I can't remember exactly, me and a lot of the other boys in my year were in this, in possibly summer holidays, possibly Christmas holidays, I can't remember, in summer holidays, we were at a football camp at Gurnell Leisure Centre, opposite the school playing fields, run by QPR, and you do a skill in the morning... And in the afternoon, we had a World Cup tournament that ran through the week. And one particular week, uh, my team won it. And this man was our star player and captain and talisman. And his name was Dominic Inglot. Dominic, thank you for joining me. Mate, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Firstly, before we get on to your career, do you have any memories of winning the World Cup with me? Absolutely. 100%. As soon as you said you won the World Cup, I was like, this is Gurnell Soccer Schools. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't even remember what it was called there. Well done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I ran by QPR. Exactly. I remember that. It was. I actually loved that. That was so much fun. Yeah, I loved that too. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, as somebody who still partakes in amateur sport, that was my sporting peak. I reckon <laughs> that was as good as it got for me. But for you, um, I mean, you've had sporting success your whole life. Do you want to tell us what you do? Um, I play tennis for a living professionally, um, and I just travel around the world and and try and play the biggest tournaments out there um and yeah i've been doing it for about oh goodness uh well professionally now for coming up to 10 years um so it's been it's been one uh one one hell of a ride and uh you know hopefully there's still a few more years in me that i can keep doing this right so let's talk about your route to becoming a professional tennis player because uh you went to the school from age four you left school at 16 but you still continued education right so what happened when you left after your GCSEs? Yeah, so after GCSEs, we just realized that if I wanted to kind of pursue my tennis dreams, um, then it was going to be tough doing it still in a setting um, of uh, while still going to school. Um, and up to that point, St. Benedict's has helped me out a lot by allowing me to kind of, you know, skip on the, on the, the games, uh, you know, days um, and able to go and take tennis lessons then or tennis squads at the uh, National Academy and so so sadly by the time I was 16 I think I had to kind of almost commit myself almost fully but uh, I actually still was doing uh, private tuition with Mr. Shuzinski in maths and uh, yeah I was I still came back and doing my AS levels at the school 
Um, I didn't actually get around to do my A-levels, A2s, because uh, by that point I was 100% tennis. Um, but thankfully it was enough because it still allowed me to go to university in America um, where I you know, got a scholarship to, to play at the University of Virginia. Um, and there were some other great tennis players there. And we, I spent four years playing tennis at the University of Virginia and I came out and, and played professional. So um, also a massively important element um, and, and part of why I'm you know, playing tennis now. What was it like going to university in America and how did you end up getting to the University of Virginia? Uh, that's a that's a great that's an interesting story um so yeah uh, basically if you if you played some of the bigger tournaments in juniors um for example junior wimbledon a lot of the college coaches from america would come out and scout you um and they'd kind of come to the matches see you know the people that might be interested in going so they'd probably look at people who maybe weren't ranked like the top 20 juniors in the world because those guys were guaranteed to go pro straight away after uh, after the juniors but you know people who are from let's say 30 downwards or something like that they'd all be kind of maybe interested um so you know i was i was talking to a few college coaches at the time and actually i was talking to the harvard coach and uh, the duke university coach and harvard um they actually wanted me to do these things called sat two level tests which i was not going to be doing anymore because they were specific kind of specific to a certain subject like history or english and um, whereas the normal SAT levels, you only have to do English and maths, or that was the case back then. Um, so I had those, um, but uh, yeah, it's um, I ended up kind of committing to go to Duke. And then what happened was uh, I actually had a bit of an eligibility issue because of this whole AS level and um, you know doing private tuition and not having going through a school per se, even though the St. Benedict's actually really were helpful in kind of, um, you know, kind of trying to you know, sort that whole situation out for me. But initially, I had a problem. And then Duke pulled out because they said, oh, you know what, you're going to be ineligible for a year because in order to uh, be kind of preserve your amateur status, you're not allowed to play for longer than a year. And if this graduation date, so to speak, wasn't accepted, then I would have been, I would have had played for too long. Oh, and wow. as a result, I would have had to sit out a year as in to regain my amateur status. Um, so they kind of bailed on me, left me high and dry. I ended up then committing to go to Rice University. But in the last second, uh, Virginia came out and they were able to get my old eligibility back, the one that Duke said I couldn't get. And without having even visited Virginia, but just speaking to the head coach, I decided to change my mind and and go to Virginia in the January of 06. So, um, yeah, the safe to say that the Rice coach, the Rice University coach was absolutely distraught. And I can't say half the words that he used uh, to describe me in our phone conversation when I told him I wasn't coming anymore. Um, but, you know, after speaking to the coach at the University of Virginia, I just had a feeling that this is the place I was going to, you know, thrive at. And this is the place where you wanted to become a professional tennis player you had to go and uh, it was probably one of the best decisions i've ever made so it was an enjoyable time though imagine being a brit from west london a good looking guy in the university of virginia was quite a great experience all around oh it was uh it was truly magical i, I know I, I don't use that word lightly but um first of all you know Charlottesville, virginia which is the town that it's in is just really a beautiful beautiful town 
Um, and I can't recommend uh, what they call the fall or the autumn, as we know it, in, in that area, which is in it's Virginia, is just amazing. The colors in the, in the leaves and stuff like that, it's just a beautiful place. And um, University of Virginia was founded by uh, Thomas Jefferson, and uh, Virginia really prides itself on that, the fact that you know, one of the founding fathers basically uh, founded this university. And you have the things like uh, the Rotunda, the original building that still stands there uh, from when it was founded. And, um, you know, everyone's, you know, very, very proud to have gone there. And, you know, the schooling is very strong as well. I ended up doing a, a finance degree at the Commerce School, which was ranked two in the country at the time. Um, and the tennis team, whilst we were there, was also ranked number one in the country. So, from a tennis and schooling perspective, I just don't think I could have had it much better than that. Um, and as you said, uh, being a Brit in uh, America has its um, positives. So uh, <laughs> I really, really had an enjoyable experience there. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've seen a lot of guys who didn't go to university or didn't pursue their academics. And they decided to go play professional at a young age from maybe, let's say, 16 uh, and they burnt out early and sadly also they didn't have anything to fall back on if they decided not to be a coach and they are coaching sadly because they don't have any other alternatives I mean there's some people I know who love coaching and that's and I have a total respect for that it's just sad sometimes to see people who um, you know they kind of wish they had made a different decision with their career path um, but yeah I was very lucky um, but also I think that's come down to my parents as well because you know, I was a young kid who thought he could take over the world at 16. And, and they were like, listen, uh, buddy, you're not quite there yet. So maybe university might be a good idea first to kind of take a little bit of pressure off, get yourself a degree. Um, and so there's like you have something on to fall back on, but also to physically develop, mentally develop. Um, and, and as a tennis player as well, in a great setting like a university um, and, and really hit the ground running when you come out professional. So what happens when you come out? What what did what were your next steps once you graduated from the University of Virginia? Well, uh, you just have to kind of start uh, from scratch, really, at the bottom. You play what we call uh, futures-level tournaments, um, and they will probably be a total purse of $10,000 or $15,000. So that's split between the whole draw, which would be about 32 singles players and 16 doubles teams. So as you can imagine, there's not a lot of money in there. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of times where I'd come out of there, you know, with six, 70 pounds or 80 pounds winnings. And my costs were far higher. You know, just a hotel would cost more sometimes per night. Um, but, uh, you know, if you won the tournament in singles, you might make a thousand pounds or something like that. But, you know, obviously you had to do really well. And... Yeah, you kind of start at that level and you try and move up through to the challenger level. And the challenger level starts, or it did then, at 25,000. Now, 25,000 are still considered futures and the challengers start at 50,000 level. And you'll have increments, depending on the total prize money, there'll be strength of points given. So um, they will usually coincide with how much prize money is there. For example, a 90,000 will give you 90 points to the winner. 100,000, 100, 125,000 will be 125 to the winner. And obviously, it'll trickle down as you kind of go worse, should we say. So, for example, if you win 125,000 challenger, you'll make 125 points. The finalists will make 70. The two semi-finalists will make uh, 45 each or something like that. So, that gives you a rough idea. Um, but, yeah, you kind of 
you kind of try and go along those lines and then eventually you get to the ATP tour and the ATP tour starts at what we call 250s, which is 250 points to the winners. Um, however, the prize money is slightly different. So usually 250s will start around the 350,000 mark uh, and they'll kind of go up. There's not, they're not all exactly the same. Um, so, and then you'll have a 500, which is what we have at Queens in London. Um, in Barons Court, that's a 500 level tournament, followed by a Master Series, which sometimes you'll see in Paris or Madrid yeah. or Rome, and and finally you'll have uh, the Grand Slam, of course, which Wimbledon is one of, um, and that will be along the lines of a 2,000 points um, for the winner. So, do you have to keep clocking up these points to make sure you're eligible for the tour next year? Basically, is that how it exactly works? right? So, yeah, exactly. So you're you have a, a best 18 results. So even if you made 25 results, so you could say, you know, one was 200, one was 180, one, whatever. The point is only the best 18 count. Um, and then the following year, you have to defend those points. So if I have a total of 1,000 and starting January the 1st, the first tournament comes along and I had made 100 points um, in that tournament the, the previous year, then my ranking would actually, my points of total would be at 900 and I'd have to defend those 100 to keep my ranking as it is. So obviously you'll have a lot of ups and downs and certain times you'll have a lot of big points that you have to defend, which you didn't. Sometimes you'll have points where you had nothing to defend and now you can really make some. Um, but yeah, it, it, can be quite, uh, it can be quite tough because uh, rankings can change quite quickly. What's it like actually being on the tour? I mean, is there a lot of camaraderie between the players? Or, you know, are you good mates with the rest of the tour or? I would say, yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone's very different. Um, and, you know, you have so many different nationalities playing that uh, you'll have people who are, you know, quite um, quite keep to themselves. You know, they're, they're quiet and, they, you know, they'll, they'll you know, have a little chat here and there, but nothing crazy. You'll have some people who are very extroverted. Um, you've got some very big egos in the, in the changing rooms as well. In general, you have mostly nations kind of sticking together so i know the spanish and the french for example are very a tight-knit group um and uh you know they always hang out together they always end up playing doubles together usually um whereas you'll have you know other people like you know the americans might hang out more with like brits and aussies and things like that but it really depends on the kind of clicks you kind of find or the people that you enjoy hanging out with and sometimes it can be that you've you know befriended people who are also at university at the same time where you were when uh, they were playing on different teams um, and uh, you know you get to know them pretty well so a, a good example of that would be someone like Kevin Anderson who was a top 10 player he made the, the final of Wimbledon uh, a few years back he was at the University of Illinois when I was at Virginia so we're good friends and John Isner who actually Anderson beat in the semi-finals of Wimbledon that year he was at the University of Georgia when I was at uh, Virginia um, so you get to know those guys along the kind of the road and and also guys that maybe you grew up playing those futures levels. I think sometimes when you've kind of toughed it out on the lower tours, you kind of form a friendship, a bond that lasts even when you do play the ATP tours when it's a bit easier and life is a bit better. Is there a big ATP tour WhatsApp group that you're all part of and all chipping into? <laughs> not really. Uh, not really. Uh, we have uh, we have a British tennis kind of WhatsApp chat. So, you know, um, Gene Murray, Andy Murray, Dan Evans, Carl Edmund, myself, Ken Skupski, Neil Skupski, uh, you know, people like that, Joe Salisbury, who just won the doubles at 
Australian Open this year. You know, we're all on a chat and we might be talking about little things. And uh, so one of the things that we were just discussing recently was uh, this whole process of Novak Djokovic talking about people uh, funding for funding yeah. for lower level players. And so we would kind of discuss that and uh, see what our thoughts were. And usually Andy would probably kind of kind of go back to, to Novak and you know kind of talk to him about what we had talked about and maybe suggested a few things here and there. So, uh, but yeah, there's it, a lot of banter as well on that on that chat. More banter than kind of uh, important stuff, let's put it that way. Oh, that's good to, good to hear though. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> you, you've, you know, you're talking about Andy and Novak there. You, you've ended up playing tennis professionally at a time when there's been these, you know, four greats of the game. Andy Murray, uh, Djokovic, Federer, and uh, Nadal. Do you have much interaction with with those four? Like, are you would you consider them all friends? Um, I wouldn't say that we are, you know, super close friends um, because uh, you know those guys are in a bit of a bubble themselves. And uh, as well as that, I play doubles now predominantly, so I don't really come up against them that often. I would consider Andy a pretty good friend. Um, Nadal and and uh, and Federer are sort of like you know you see them you say hey what's up that's it kind of move along I've had a few chats with Nadal because uh, luckily uh, there was one year that we both went to a pro am at the Necker Island uh, Richard Branson's island so we got to, you know kind of got chatting a bit more there so that's nice um, and Novak I would say probably a little bit more so than the other two uh, simply because um, he is on the player council or was. Uh, and, you know, um, I kind of wanted to chat to him. This is when Fe- Roger Federer and Nadal weren't on the player council. So I kind of was discussing a few things with him. And and also my brother happens to be on the board of the ATP now as well. So um, kind of talking with him and talking with my brother and things like that, there's uh, kind of more chats regarding the, the tour as well. So, um, yeah, that, I guess that's the kind of situation it is, but sometimes yeah. you know it's just a question of who you've played against and and played with and things like that that can kind of make the difference in terms of how close you are with them. You won the winning British Davis Cup team, right? What was that experience like? Yeah, that was that was an incredible experience. Um, you know, representing your country is always uh, the highlight of your career, um, and to be able to be part of that team, you know, uh, you know the Davis Cup we haven't won it in. <laughs> I can't remember how many years, 70 years or something like that, or 80 maybe. Um, and, you know, to be on there with the likes of, you know, Jamie and, and Andy uh, Murray, uh, you know, it, it's it's always going to be something like a treasure um, and uh, always remember. And, it, you know, it's just, it's just nice to be you know, sort of on that team with them and, and have pictures of you guys holding the trophy together. So uh, definitely an amazing, amazing experience. Um, bringing it back around to school a little bit and you know being a, a teenager I suppose at what point did you decide that you wanted you wanted to become a professional tennis player it, it's kind of weird because when I was a young kid when I was about 10 or or 11 and you know any wish I ever made was always to be a professional tennis player whether it was when you cut your cake and, and blow out your birthday candles and make a wish um, it was it was to be a professional tennis player if it was going to some landmark or you know throwing a coin in a fountain and and you know, doing what anything you're meant to do to to make a wish, it was always to be a professional tennis player. So, um, I think I always knew in in my heart that I wanted to be a professional tennis player. But in terms of actually seriously thinking, hold on a second, I could maybe make this a career. Um, it was probably I would say maybe fourteen, fifteen when you start playing some 
you know, national events and international events and you start realizing, okay, you know what, this isn't going too badly. And uh, you see other people that you've heard of older or your same age doing well. And, you know, the people start telling you that, you know what, maybe this is something that you want to consider and et cetera, et cetera. So I think probably in all seriousness, probably from 14, 15, but I guess it was always been a part of me to, that I knew that I wanted to be a professional tennis player since I was 10. Yeah, because I remember at school you were, you, you're probably the, the best sportsman in terms of just raw sporting ability I've ever played with or, you know, known. And you were brilliant at rugby and football. And I, I can't remember you ever playing cricket, but I imagine you're probably good at that as well. I played I played one year. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, the teacher, this is, he wanted me to um, to be a bowler because he was like, oh, it's going to come naturally to you. And I was like, I've never bowled in my life. And he was like, I think you could pick it up pretty quickly. And sure enough, I did. I mean, obviously, there's so many things that tennis can help you with uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, as a as an overhead racket sport, you know, the overhead element of the bowl, you know, came pretty quickly. And obviously, the hand-eye coordination from hitting a tennis ball with your ground strokes makes, you know, batting pretty uh you know, it comes quickly as well. So I always felt like I was a good batter, but the bowling kind of also element came along. But, you know, I think uh, sadly I couldn't participate in those sports uh, much longer. I remember I broke my collarbone when I was in school yeah, uh, playing well. rugby. And my dad was like, you're not doing that again. And then also uh, when I started um, going to do tennis lessons and, and tennis squads instead of going to games, obviously I wasn't around anymore for, for that. But I think it's. I've always been a, a sportsman. I mean, my brother loved sport. My dad was a professional footballer back in Poland in the day. Um, so sport has been a massive part of our family, and uh, you know, I think that that's a big part of of being a, a any good kind of athlete is nowadays. It's not so much doing just one sport all the time. It's actually doing multiple sports. And uh, I think you'll we find a lot of cases now where the best athletes in the world are ones that did different sports when they were younger. I mean, I yeah. know Djokovic doing skiing um, and other players played football. I think Dominic Team was a very good footballer and things like that. So um, those are important elements. Um, what do you do in your downtime to relax from tennis? Or is it just always, you know, are you always thinking about tennis? Do you, do you ever relax? Uh, sometimes it can be tough. Um, I, you know, I had this chat recently with with a sister of another player, with Carl Edmund's sister, and uh, she was saying how when Carl uh, comes back from a, a trip abroad and stuff like that, he would just conk out on the couch and that's it. And, and and it's actually quite accurate because the funny thing is, you know, we travel so much of the year um, that when you come back, it's just nice to be in your own bed and be on your own couch and, and just sit there and relax and watch TV because you're you know, so much of uh, of a of a travel is 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 work related, and I think a lot of people think that you know um, you go and see amazing places and travel to amazing parts of the world, but you don't always get to see them uh, because you know you have to go to a you might let's say a, 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 a general kind of day on the on the tour might be you wake up, you get your breakfast. Perhaps in my case, you even do like a morning routine, like a yoga routine, stretching routine. Uh, get your breakfast, go to the gym, do some kind of core exercises or, uh, you know, some kind of lighter exercises to kind of prime your body. Uh, then you'll go to the courts. You've got to do a warm-up. You've got to hit. Uh, then you might even have a second hit of the day. Uh, but let's just assume you don't do that. 
you know you you've got a pretty intensive hit so uh you've got to uh, you know also do physio treatment if you if you're only doing one hit a day you've probably got another fitness session if you've got a match or you have a second session of the day you've also got to warm up for that warm down from that stretch from that uh shoulder rehab knee rehab all these kind of rehab sessions massages things like that so by the time you come back you're absolutely knackered um do you take a coach and dietitian and have a whole kind of team lot with you um no i won't have a full team like that because sadly that is actually very expensive yeah um but i i usually travel with a coach um and i would say that i had a fitness trainer with me for most of my career more recently i haven't had it because um because I've actually, now that I'm older, I found that uh, I kind of know my body well enough. I know what I need to do. Um, you know, kind of with age, you sort of understand yourself a bit better. When I was a bit younger, you know, you needed someone to kind of tell you, hey, listen, do this, do that. Uh, kind of tell you, you know, to remind you. But I think, you know, now that I've been on the tour for so long, uh, maybe that's not as vital. Um, but also there's elements like physios that the actual tournaments provide and massage therapists so you can access those obviously sometimes you're in a waiting list and things like that but uh, the coach i'll always travel with um, and fitness trainers not so much anymore brilliant um just two more questions before i let you go um firstly if you could go back to the moment you left st bendix and i know you left after your gcse's um at the age of 16 and you know what advice would you give your 16 year old self Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oof. <laughs> what would I give my... Oh, um, oh, wow. You've really put me on the spot here. <laughs> Sorry, man. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, uh, you know what? It's tough. It's It's a tough one there because... I'm not someone who has a lot of regrets, um, and I believe that everything happens for a reason in your life. Uh, so I, I don't know if I would say, oh, you know, work harder and focus on this and train harder and, you know, take care of your body more and, 
you know, when you go to college, maybe don't go out as much and things like that. But ultimately, you know, on the flip side, let, let's say I did do that, maybe I would have been injured more and, and yeah. had to come out of the sport. Uh, who knows? You know, I've already had a few surgeries, so uh, maybe that would have set me over the edge earlier. I don't know. But um, I think I would have said to myself is just kind of uh, trust trust yourself and, and don't worry about what other people are doing and, and believe in yourself. There's, it's not as hard as it seems. Um, and with hard work and determination, uh, it's far more possible than you actually think it is. I, I definitely think as a as a 16-year-old, I thought that, wow, the kind of the stars at the top, are, it's unobtainable in a sense that the very, very top, like you need to have some sort of unbelievable world-class ability that no one has ever seen. And, and yes, don't get me wrong, Roger Federer does have that in the dial, but sometimes I look at it and I'm like, these top 20 players, they are just extremely fit, extremely disciplined, and mentally tough, and that can get you very, very far. And I would say that, uh, you know, those three things are more important. And, uh, you know, I would even quote Michael Jordan, who said that talent is overrated. Um, you know, hard work and, and discipline is, is the key. And, and if you have those, you you can really, really, really go far. Um, I'm not going to, you know, suggest that, you know, we're both the same age, so I'm not going to suggest that your retirement from uh, from tennis is close. But have you got plans for what you would do at the point when you have to stop playing? Um, I've always considered uh, going into the finance uh, world, uh, industry. Uh, you know, I finished with a degree in finance. Um, and uh, you get to meet some, you know, pretty interesting people uh, along your kind of tennis career. And a lot of uh, a lot of people who work in, 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 the, some of the, in the city or in uh, Wall Street in New York, they're big tennis fans and uh you know, they've always said, oh, you should come and, you know, work uh, for a bank or something like that or a fund or things like that because they, they like the attributes that tennis players have. And I think that's another side thing that most people don't realize is that tennis, irrespective of, of how much you achieve, opens up so many doors because of the people that you meet, but also the people that respect, uh, you know, what you've gone through as a, as a tennis player, the discipline it takes, the, the sacrifice and things like that. So, I would say I would say probably somewhere in the finance world, maybe um, I don't know exactly specifically yet which one, uh, but or which which department. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, like now in this uh, off time that I have, I kind of started to kind of start taking some trading classes and courses. So maybe something in that direction. And finally, talking about your off time, how how are you finding isolation and what are you doing to keep yourself kind of going? Um, I actually like the isolation. Uh, you know, I I get to spend. You know, being at home uh, for much longer than I ever have in the last ten years, probably uh, bar when I was injured. But uh, yeah, no, I kind of I have a nice routine now. I can get up and and enjoy my kind of breakfast rather than rushing to the courts. Uh, you know, I, I, luckily I've got um, you know gym equipment and a watt bike at home, so I can kind of really crank out some sessions. Um, and then uh, you know, I probably I took a, 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 a what. What did I take? A financial markets class on Coursera, which is um, from a Yale class, and now I'm doing a little trading trading course. So uh, doing those kind of things, uh, you know, investing a little bit in the stock market, just my own stuff rather than you know looking at an advisor's advice. So you know, kind of trying to learn a little bit like that, and uh, and it's also nice just to spend some time with family as well. That that's that's something that I've kind of maybe haven't done enough of. So 
yeah yeah that that's been enjoyable and i think the the weather's been really nice so seeing outside and just appreciating it is a is a is a bonus as well dominic inglot thank you for joining me today mark it's a pleasure thank you for having me Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.